You are very welcome back to the show. Now, my next guest has spent over 20 years in various levels of the American military and industrial, uh, military and intelligence community, rather. He is an incredible speaker. He's a, a, currently a lawyer. Todd Hulsey, welcome to the program. Jack, it's a real honor and pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, Todd, it's truly an honor uh, here as well. You know, we don't always, in Ireland, we don't always get to speak to kind of high-ranking people like yourself. Firstly, I wanted to ask the question that I'm sure a lot of people were, are wondering, were you a spy? No, I was a counter-spy. Okay, so what does that entail? Well, a counter-spy operates against the espionage and intelligence collection activities of foreign powers. And I spent about half of my career with the FBI doing that. That's very, very interesting. Let's take it back then to how you got started. I understand you spent many years in the Marines. I graduated from high school and then I went in the United States Marine Corps. And I spent three years in active duty. Upon separating from active duty, I then attended college earning a bachelor's degree. I then went to work for the United States Department of Treasury as a special agent. I spent five years with the Treasury Department. And during that time, I worked investigations against Colombian and Mexican drug trafficking organizations along the Gulf Coast of the United States and along the Southwest border with Mexico. After five years, I then resigned. I went to graduate school, took a master's degree in international relations, and then Went to law school and took a law degree. I uh, passed the bar exam. I practiced law for about a year and determined that I didn't really want to practice law. I much rather would do the job that I had before, which is investigating organizations. And um, the, the agency in the United States that loves to hire lawyers as special agents is the Federal Bureau of Investigations. So I, I applied to it. I applied to the Drug Enforcement Administration. I kind of slow walked the second application. I didn't want to be offered a job by DEA first and, uh, and then kind of fast track on my end, my application to the Bureau. And 14 months after I applied, which is fast, uh, I was uh, reporting for duty at Quantico, Virginia for the F to attend the FBI Academy, new agents training. And then I spent the remaining 16 years uh, with the FBI and various assignments, foreign and, and, of course, mostly domestic, retiring in 2014 after a total of 21 years of uh, federal law enforcement service. If you were to ask me what I am, like, what are you? I mean, I'm a lot of things like a lot of people. I'm a husband. I'm a dad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if you ask me, well, what are you? Uh, I am a soldier. That, that's what I am at heart. And, uh, and everything, and that means all encapsulating. So, any former American Marines are are listening to this, they don't need to chide me for using the term soldier, which is applied in the American lexicon to the United States Army. I'm using that in the global sense of being a uh, a military person. And uh, secondarily, I would say I'm I'm a retired intelligence officer since I spent a great deal of my FBI time in the national security side of things. It's very, very interesting. Over here, you do two things. When you're 18 or 19, you either go to college or you go and you probably pick up a trade. In America, it seems a little different, and certainly your story. To go to the military first and then go to college, it's an interesting path. Why did you cho choose to do that? And would a lot of people, your peers at the time, have gone the similar route? 
It's not an unusual route in the United States. It's not unusual at all. I would say it is one of the typical routes uh, for people. Now, it is atypical in our society for people to serve in the military. Uh, only about 1% of Americans serve in, in the United States military. Uh, that's an entire uh, podcast discussion as to whether that's good or bad uh, in terms of citizenship, exercising the duties of citizenship. But that's that's about right. But I would say that, you know, thousands of people uh, enlist right out of high school, do a tour of duty in the military and then get out and go to college. It's a very typical path. In the United States, we oversell uh, college education. And I will tell you this. I've got four college degrees, and the last one has the word doctor in it, and college is oversold in my country as a, as a necessary path to success. But a plumber in the United States uh, can make $100,000 a year. Uh, a welder can make $100,000 a year. So these trade jobs, which are undersold by our educational establishment, uh, are another pathway to success. It seems like in other parts of the world, um, the I'm going to go ahead and call it a scam. The scam of the college education hasn't taken hold like it has in the United States and much to our detriment because, uh, you know, somebody doesn't know what else to do. And they go to college and they get some meaningless liberal arts degree that doesn't help them get a job in the you know globalized high tech economy is really a waste of time and money, in my personal opinion. Uh, but my particular path, getting back to that, is, uh, is, is not an unusual one at all. Well, before you got maybe suckered into the scam of college, those kind of three years you spent in the military, as you went into the military, what did you expect? Were you hoping for some combat, some boots on the ground, or was it more of a perhaps a formative experience in a different way? Huh. Well... Being 17 years old when I went off to recruit training, yes, I wanted action. I wanted combat. I wanted to get into the fight. Um, as we would say, every red-blooded American boy wants to get in, wants to get into a fight. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I hate to be the guy, the old guy who yells at the kids, get that, you know, get off my lawn. I don't want to be the old guy saying, well, today's kids are, and then fill in the blank. Um, but I do think in a society, you know, which relies on social media so much, there is a distinct difference between, you know, a 17-year-old today and a 17-year-old 40 years ago when I was 17 years old. And, um, but yeah, I wanted action. Of course, the only, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Um, there was the Beirut intervention in 1983. It, well, actually started in 1982, and, uh, and and then there was the Grenada invasion. But I was stationed on the west coast of the United States, and uh, my area, I say mine, I mean, I was a low-ranking enlisted man, but our area of, uh, of um, responsibility was, was the Pacific. So um, my battalion, I was in an infantry battalion. My battalion wasn't deployed to anything except, you know, training on, at Okinawa, Japan, and uh, in what the Western Pacific for six months, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's a, uh, it's it's almost a for some people a formative experience to, uh, uh, as well as uh, the seeking out of of, of action. Uh, I will say that today in the post 9/11 2001 world, the United States has been 
really overly engaged militarily around the world that somebody, uh, not so much this year because the United States is pulling back, but in the last 20 years, somebody who enlisted in the military was almost certain to be deployed to a combat zone. And whether their job would entail them to experience combat is another question, but, but it was almost a certainty to be deployed to a combat zone. And so I have to give uh, extra kudos to everybody who, uh, you know, signed on the dotted line and raised the right hand and took the oath of enlistment because they knew they were going to war. And that's, uh, you know, and that's, um, you know, that's a uh, that's something that has some gravity to it. Certainly. Now, when you eventually went to college, you got suckered in by the scam. You, I believe you did three years there. And from what I understand, the CIA was your end point in your mind. And that almost came together, but then it kind of faltered at the last moment. It did. So you've done your research well, because almost nobody would have uh, figured that out. I, uh, when I went to college, um, it was for a specific purpose. I took a political science degree. Um, by the way, looking back, it's a meaningless liberal arts degree, but that's what I took because I wanted to work for the agency. I actually went through the hiring process with the agency and was offered a job. And then the job was pulled back after about, I think the job offer, which I accepted, I think after about four or five months, it was pulled back. And what was explained to me is that it was a funding issue and uh, that they couldn't fill a number of positions that fiscal year and invited me to reapply the following year. And instead, I went and applied to the Treasury Department. A friend of mine, a college friend of mine, had uh, gotten a job as an investigator for the Treasury Department. He said, well, we're hiring. And so I applied for that job and I, uh, and I was hired to do that. But and the CIA was my, my end game initially. And then uh, you go into the customs division and kind of uh, basically a DEA agent without the badge of the DEA, if I understand correctly. That's right. Um, in, the, in the United States federal law, the title that covers narcotics is called Title 21 of the United States Code. And as a Treasury agent, I was Title 21 cross-designated. So the DEA deputized me to be a DEA agent. This was not an unusual thing either. This was a fairly common thing in federal law enforcement uh, because, you know, there's only so many DEA agents to go around. And, and so a lot of our a lot of Treasury agents were cross-designated, and I was one of them. Then eventually you make your way to the FBI. Tell me what was your yes. first day like in Quantico? The first day at Quantico, well, it, <laughs> I, everybody's wearing business suits and we all have our orders in hand and we all go check in and uh, it was all very professionally done. It was, uh, when I was a treasury agent, we trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Every federal law enforcement agency except the FBI and DEA train at Fletzy, F-L-E-T-C, Fletzy. Uh, the DEA and the FBI both maintain academies at Quantico, Virginia, on the Marine Corps base in Quantico. And that's an artifact. DEA used to train at Fletzy, too, but uh, there was a talk in the late 1980s of merging the DEA with the FBI, which never happened, but they did move their academy to Quantico 
because of that planning. So there I am at Fletchy and it was a little more chaotic and checking in. And, um, because so many different people. I mean, I was on a bus, picked up at the airport, go to Fletzy, so many different agencies on board, everybody going to a, a little separate, tr- you know, training uh, program. And it's a little more chaotic, but the FBI was, was very professional. And it was like, you know, off of a checklist to fly an airplane, you know, tick this one, tick that one, tick that mark, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, and then, you know, go here. It was very professional. Are you happy when you look back at your time in the FBI? Are you happy? Did it live up to the expectations you had? You know, the 15-year-old me, if they, if that person read my bio, they would say, I want to be that guy someday. So in, in that regard, I won. Yeah. I did things with the Bureau that I wouldn't have done in any other walk of life. I mean, I used to go to meetings at the White House. I'm a nobody. I mean, but I used to be. Uh, the way the National Security Council in the White House works is that only the top people are, are uh, you know, presidential designees. The, the people who actually do the work come from the various agencies. And I was, I was one of those people assigned to the National Security Council staff. Not it wasn't a full-time assignment, but it was a collateral duty for me. But, but still, I have to go into the White House for a meeting and be like, wow, you know, what am I doing uh, coming to the White House to go to a meeting. I would never have done that working anywhere else. It wouldn't have done that if I continued with the Treasury Department, that's for sure. And so those kinds of things, you know, that I got to do and the people I got to meet uh, were extraordinary. And it's because I worked for the FBI. And I will also say that my experience is not atypical. So if you read my bio, uh, that could be a lot of different people's bio with a little bit of different uh, changes. There's, um, you know, people, there are people who do amazing things, get to do amazing things because they're employed by the um, Federal Bureau of Investigation. There's a lot if when you read your IMDB, there's a cyber crime, there's drugs, there's a, a whole slot of different uh, kind of I suppose salacious topics. But can you give us an idea as to some of the main things that you investigated or worked on at the FBI? Yeah, I originally was a member of the Los Angeles Safe Streets Task Force. Uh, I was on a sub-task force called the Sexual Assault Felony Enforcement Team, and that team uh, did two things. It was uh, it targeted traffickers of, of child pornography, uh, primarily on the Internet, and then also uh, targeted people who would, grown men who would meet young girls or online and then set up physical meetings. And it was a multi- agency task force. My partner on that task force was a Los Angeles police department detective. We had Los Angeles County Sheriff's detectives, LAPD detectives, Orange County, California Sheriff's detectives, California Department of Justice investigators, California uh, Board of of, uh, Parole investigator. We had a representative of the U.S. Customs Service and uh, the rest of us were FBI. And it was a very active squad. We, we seemed to be serving an arrest and search warrant on somebody a couple times a week. Extremely active squad. And uh, we targeted mostly the travelers, the guys who would set up meetings uh, online to meet young girls. We had a Los Angeles County, a female Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy who was a little blonde lady, um, quite attractive, who was about 30 years old and she looked her age, you know, up close, but at a distance, 
you know, where you know, she, she could pass for a 14 year old at a distance, just dress her properly to, to, to play that role. And we nabbed a lot of guys that way um, using her as the, uh, as the bait. Of course, the online transaction is between this guy and uh, the, uh, the agent named Fred sitting over there in that cubicle. But uh, when they actually tried to make the meet, there was this little blonde uh, who, who they believed was, a four, for example, a 14-year-old. I was quickly transferred from there to the Southern California Drug Task Force, which was a DEA-led task force where I worked against Pacific Islander and Mexican drug trafficking organizations. And, uh, you know, I, I worked a very big case, a uh, very big drug case. Uh, I was, uh, we, we wiretapped uh, a, a female Mexican drug trafficker who lived in Hacienda Heights, California. It was an extremely difficult case because this person was, she was uh, security conscious to the point of, uh, you, you know, it, she could have been trained by the KGB. She was so security conscious and um, multiple agencies had made a run at her and not, uh, and not um, you know, made any headway. And I'm proud to say that, uh, that through just plain old gumshoe detective work, um, and I will pat myself on the back here, is that <laughs> we broke the case. And then, and then um, my goodness, the first round of indictments were over 100 people in three United States states mm-hmm. and Mexico. And spinoffs of the case continued for five years thereafter around the country. So it was a significant case, but I, I was tired of working, you know, drug cases like that. Now they're, they're organized crime cases because you're not dealing with somebody selling drugs in a street corner. You're talking about working against whole organizations. But I had, I was tired of that. So I, I uh, requested a transfer to counterintelligence, and then I was transferred to work at uh, East Asian counterintelligence in the Los Angeles division. Well, before and we then, before we progress yeah. that story a little bit, I'm very curious mm-hmm. when they come to you and they say, "Todd, listen, there are these you know horrific people who are exploiting children, or there is this uh, female drug kingpin who we can't quite nail down." How would you go about? What would the first steps be? in kind of, I suppose, instigating your technique of investigation? Is there perhaps people you would automatically call or, you know, checks and balances that you would initially put into place? Well, the number one thing is to talk to people. And the, you know, you're in, in both law enforcement and intelligence, including counterintelligence. Intelligence and counterintelligence are two sides of the same coin. But, but the, what you have to do to make cases and investigations and intelligence collection go forward is you have to recruit and operate human sources, people who will tell you stuff. And, uh, and, that's, and that's what we did. Now, as far as the child pornography cases, there are known websites, mostly today on the dark web, that people traffic in all sorts of illicit materials including child pornography. So um, it's just a, it's a matter of, of getting into those sites and then posing as a, uh, you know, as a player. And, uh, you know, sometimes people come to you. Sometimes there's someone who is arrested. They've dealt with others online. And in order to reduce the sentence they're going to receive have agreed to cooperate and they cooperate. And then there's a whole list of people to then contact that you can re- operate the person who has been arrested and uh 
usually this is before they go to trial because you want the cooperation to be uh, what you expect prior to going to court because um, they can say anything and then, you know, they get a sentence and then, you know, big middle finger, screw you guys. Mm. Um, so, you know, you, you don't just, it's a very, it's a greased machine. It works properly. So, there, you know, the government being taken advantage of by some crook is about, the chances are about zero. Mm. But, uh, you know, you, you know, these people, you operate them as a source against other traffickers. It can be trafficking and stolen art. It doesn't have to be child pornography. But, you, you know, you just operate these people against these other traffickers and you reel them in. And, uh, and the same thing in that, that drug case, you know, the uh, DEA tried hard twice to make a case against this person. The Anaheim, California Police Department tried hard to make a case against this person and could not. And my supervisor uh, threw it on my desk. He said, solve this case. And uh, I remember I was reading a case and I went to him and said, I don't, I don't think there's enough there. And I remember him saying, <laughs> he pointed at me, he said, she's running dope. <laughs> you get back there and you know, you figure this case out. And, um, and, uh, I said, okay. And I went and I'm really happy that he, that he didn't let me say, look, I, I don't, I can't see anything here. There's nothing there that he made me go back and look again. I found one report in the case file, Jack, I got a coffee cup in my hand. Let me turn away from the camera. The case file that I had access to was the DEA was this was the task force case file. And, and yeah, the computer age, but we're talking, you know, late nineties. The case file was about that thick. <laughs> so I read every single report in the case file. I started over after my supervisor said, go back and, and look some more because there's something there. And I went back and I read it again from, from the first page. I read the whole case file again. There was one report filed by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department uh, of, of uh, a person who dropped a package off at a uh, commercial shipping site, be FedEx, I believe, if I remember correctly. Could have been United Parcel Service, but FedEx sticks in my head. And it just so happened on that day, there's a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department drug detector canine working that location who alerted on this package. And it alerted on the package in time for the person who dropped it off to be observed going back to his vehicle and driving away. And then we had a license plate number, the license plate number, you know, the registered owner. And so that was the key that the, it, the LA County Sheriff's department didn't follow up on, didn't open a case on this person. It was one of those things. They had so much going on. This was kind of put in the back burner and frankly, probably forgotten about you know, there's always crime going on everywhere on planet Earth all the time. You know, wherever there's humans, there's crime. So you only have so, so many people and so many hours in the day to handle all the cases that can arise. So this was kind of put, put to the side, forgotten about by the county sheriff's department. And from that one report, which was, I've, I've given you basically the entire report. It was on one page. And um, I contacted that owner. And from that contact, I recruited four confidential human sources and one cooperating witness. 
And that and, was the and case that, solved. That that's what started moving the case forward, and we developed enough probable cause to apply for a, a wiretap, and uh, you know the judge granted it. Then we went live, and after that, once a wiretap went up, that was um, you know that then the case just moved. It moved like a train, you know, gaining speed. Uh, I will say this because what people see in American, the worst exports of the United States are our television shows and our movies. <laughs> gives people a really warped view of the United States. But one thing that's always portrayed in American TV shows and movies is that the government can just go get a wiretap with a snap of the fingers. And it is absolutely not like that. It is an arduous process. Um, it's very, very difficult. And, um, uh, there's that judge who can just tell you, no, you don't have enough probable cause, you know, go back and get more, you know, get out of my office. And, um, but, but there's a whole process from the administrative side going through the department of federal department of justice before it even gets to a judge. So it's an arduous process. It's not easy, but, but we, we are, we developed the probable cause because of these human sources and, and move the case forward. And of course I mentioned earlier, you know, how to, what it led to in the first round of indictments. That's very good. I wondered, you know, that, that soldier mentality that you have, it must be very, very vital because I would say it would be difficult to lay your head on a pillow at night when you're looking at these horrific images of children being exploited or certainly even just hearing the stories or even, you know, while it's a little bit more detached, some of this uh, kingpin stuff, you know, the kind of murder and brutality that can go on with that. Did those things ever jar with you? I wasn't one of the people who had an online persona who were pursuing um, the child pornographers. Uh, I do have a, I have a memory. Uh, look, I've, 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 um, I, I've, I've seen autopsy photos, um, you know, shootout photos. Uh, I personally have uh, stepped over some dude's brains lying in the street after they were blown out of his head with a rifle shot. Um, and you know, I've seen a lot of that stuff. The only photograph in person and in photographs, the only, the only thing that, uh, really bothered me was there was a photograph I saw. It was in a collection of photos, um, that a subject, a suspect had, uh, sent around to his contacts on the internet. It was of a, about a three-year-old girl with a grown man's penis in her mouth. And that was the first time I actually got sick to my stomach, uh, looking at a photo, you know, um, I've seen, you know, the medical examiner, the photos of the body laid open and, you know, stuff like that. I never really, that never really, those things didn't bother me, but that one photo, it still sticks in my head. Cause you know, who would do that to a, a little, it's beyond my way of thinking, my perspective on, on life on planet earth, why anybody would do that to such a, small child and um you know so that's the one thing that bothered me none, none of the other stuff really bothered me and as far as the cartels go um the violence of the mexican drug trafficking cartels today are, are you know third order of magnitude greater than they were um 20 years ago and and you know that that just comes with the territory it's just what these drug trafficking organizations do 
you know, the Colombians before them, uh, but the Mexicans were way more violent than the Colombians ever were, in my opinion. Being in uh, the intelligence, the uh, sorry, being in the intelligence mm -hmm. community during the time of 9-11, what was that experience like? Well, when 9-11 happened, it was all hands on deck to try to, uh, you know, find out if there was another attack coming. Uh, the FBI had been re very reactive up until that point, and President George W. Bush told the FBI director, who was Robert Mueller at the time, that, uh, you know, um, I don't want to know, I don't want you to come and tell me what these guys did, because they already did it. I want you to come and tell me what you're doing to prevent the next attack. So the whole posture of the FBI turned towards preventing the next attack. And, um, you know, for the first month after those attacks, it was all hands on deck. Everybody, regardless of what they were working, you know, you may have somebody worked organized crime over here, white collar crime over there, counterintelligence in my case, everybody became a counterterrorism um, agent and, and worked to, to make sure that there were, you know, no pending attacks on the United States. It really, uh, again, it was all hands on deck. And uh, I mean, very long hours and, uh, and a lot of vetting of information that was pouring in. I mean, I can tell you that we learned that a lot of people in Los Angeles didn't like their neighbors. They would call in and say, I got these Arab terrorists living next door to me and you must do something. And it turns out they weren't either Arab or terrorists at all. They just wanted their neighbors to get jacked with, you know? Mm. Um, so, uh, but whatever commentary that is on society, uh, there was so much information coming in and at the, time and i think it's still true is that every single piece of information had to be run to the ground even if an experienced investigator would look at it and say yeah i don't think that this is something that's really there uh you still had to run it to ground to make sure and and that that was uh that that took everybody's uh time and attention for a good long while. Was there a sense of enthusiasm? Was it a, a sullen mood? How, how was the kind of mood in, in that community, in the FBI? Because of course, you know, 2000 lives plus had been lost, but at the same time, I suppose there had to be some adrenaline to go and put the fight to the terrorists. Can I cuss on your show? Yeah, sure. The attitude was, we're going to get these motherfuckers and we're going to shove it right back up their asses. That was the attitude. I mean, that's why a week after nine 11, you had American commandos on the ground in, uh, in Afghanistan, you know, and the entire U S intelligence community and the parts of the law, the federal law enforcement community that has a role to play in counterterrorism. That was the attitude. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to soft pedal it. I'm probably not saying it um, with enough enough emphasis, but that was it. That was the attitude. And um, I mean, talk about talk about you know people who. I mean, we 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 were uh, the the Americans were generally, you know, even in, I was living in Los Angeles. That is, uh, you know, California is a political. Uh, left of center moving towards leftism state where you got all sorts of touchy feely kind of people who, who, um, you know, you wouldn't call politically conservative. I mean, they'd be on a different galaxy than that who were angry flying American flags, you know, stuck on their vehicles and stuff. And it was a very different time. 
for a few months in the United States where now we're politically divided. And, you know, it's, I'm sure it's the same in many European countries where the extremes seem to have the microphones. But at the time, the country really came together and people were angry. And those of us who, whose job it was to prevent another attack were, were um, well, I described how we all felt. And that was, uh, that was real, Jack. That was real. Talk to me about your time in counterintelligence. So we went through your, uh, I suppose, a really difficult experience, but cutting your teeth with the child exploitation, I suppose, task force, and then taking down this kingpin woman in Los Angeles. Then you seem to make the shift towards counterintelligence. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to. I was tired of working, you know, drug cases. I was just tired of it. Um, it, it, It's almost... You know, California borders Mexico, as does my home state, you know, the great mighty and sovereign state of Texas. And, you know, you can almost take, you almost write reports, you know, write affidavits and you change the dates uh, and and the names and it's the same stuff. And all the names are going to be Spanish names, you know. And so you just change dates and names. You don't do that in practice because that you, you can't conduct a lawful investigation that way. But I mean, from an impressionistic standpoint, it it just got to be, you know, I did this five years before the Bureau and then I'm doing it now. I I didn't, I want to do FBI stuff, not DEA stuff. I want to do FBI stuff. So I, I, uh, you know, asked for a transfer to counterintelligence. I was assigned to East Asian counterintelligence, um, specifically uh, a couple of communist nations in East Asia, uh, we were working against, um, and, and, and I was working against one, which is particularly uh, oppressive. And uh, then we had uh, a penetration of the FBI by the Foreign Intelligence Service, an East Asian nation of some um, sizable population. And I was sent to work on the task force to uh, investigate that. And there were several spinoff cases of that, of which I had two or three and uh, worked on that in Los Angeles and then was uh, ordered to headquarters for 30 days to, uh, to push through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act applications for wiretaps. And 30 days became seven months and then seven months turned into a transfer to headquarters. In the East Asia, Asian cases, would a lot of that been situated in East Asia or was it more uh, from the American side? No, from our side, from the United States. You know, Los Angeles is, um, I'm just give you an example. There are more Iranians who live in Los Angeles, California than any other place on planet Earth except Iran. It is a place which attracts people from all over the world. Now, I personally hate Los Angeles as a place to live. However, um, you know, many American television shows are set in Los Angeles simply because it's convenient. Um, So it has a pull around the world. So if there's a population of people, um, there's a whole bunch of them in Los Angeles. 
In 2014, you decided to, as we said, retire from the FBI. Was it difficult to adjust back to, I suppose, civilian life? You are now practicing as a lawyer and you've got another side venture, I understand as well. Is it difficult Mm -hmm. to go from the high octane and I suppose the constant threat to not being able to even be involved in stopping the threats you might see on a day to day basis? The biggest adjustment really was when something big was in the news that the FBI was working on is not being involved in it. The day to day, I didn't miss it all. I don't miss it now. Um, I have very little contact with anybody who works with the FBI today. It's something I, I did once. I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud of the things that I did. Um, I'm proud of my service, but it's something I did once. I don't, dwell on it and um so so it's just when something big happens i don't know if you'll remember gosh it might be four or five maybe five years ago today but in san bernardino california at a office christmas party these two um arab muslim individuals a husband wife team shot up the uh i'm sorry i'm making my phone rock back and forth shot up this christmas party and and it was an act of terrorism and and of course, the FBI is the lead agency in counterterrorism in the United States. And it's things like that. It's like, man, I wish I was there working on that mm-hmm. um, when they're big news stories. Uh, otherwise, no, it wasn't a big adjustment. Um, other than that. That's well, that's a good thing to hear, I suppose. Todd, thank, uh, thanks again. You've given us so much of your time. Uh, is there anywhere? Uh, I believe you have a podcast, if I'm correct. I do. It's called the Dirt Wasp podcast. It can be found uh, on virtually every podcast directory. It leans heavily on military and martial arts subjects, as well as some law enforcement subjects. But I have in the catalog of episodes, I think I'm up to 62 episodes right now. There's, you know, a whole bunch of different topics. So I would just encourage people to just Google search Dirt Wasp podcast and the website will come up and many of the podcast directories will too. And just peruse our catalog of episodes and, uh, you know, take a listen. And if you like it, obviously, you know, Jack, you want somebody to uh, give you a rating, you know, give you a review, refer it out. That would be fantastic. Well, Todd Hulsey, thanks so much once again, all the way from America, joining us here in Ireland. What a great conversation. Well, as a member of the diaspora, I just want to thank you to thank you for having me. And it's been a great honor of mine, Jack. Thank you so much.